All right, gang, I want you to take your Bible and open it to Psalm 22. There we go. <laughs> Psalm 22. Uh, we'll get there in a moment. I uh, am actually quite happy that the message I've chosen and the way I've chosen to deliver it kind of comes on a Sunday like today because uh, this is kind of a smaller, intimate crowd. And what I've prepared this week is really more a Bible study, I think, than anything, because the message of Psalm 22 at the outset appears to be pretty depressing. It's pretty difficult to take for the first few verses, but then David makes a turn and everything changes, and I want to talk about that today. But first, I want to tell you about my New Year's feast. Uh, our family does a traditional New Year's meal on New Year's Day. We'll typically have a ham, and then we'll have greens, and then we'll have black-eyed peas and cornbread and the whole traditional kind of setup there. This year, instead of doing the ham, I decided to uh, do a turkey. I had a turkey in the freezer, and I thought, well, this would give me an opportunity to kind of, you know, improve my skill at making a turkey on the green egg. I try to smoke it first and get some good color on it. Then I cover it and cook it covered until it's, you know, to the proper doneness. Uh, so I did the turkey, and so as you can imagine, there were only three of us eating this meal, and we had an enormous turkey. I've been eating turkey quite a lot for the last two weeks. In fact, we just finished it off, okay? Amy made a wonderful turkey pot pie, uh, and of course, there's turkey salad, and, and, and I, I just love a turkey sandwich. Well, when it comes to saving leftovers, uh, many of us are old enough to remember when this is really all we had, Okay. Uh, remember what it was like to try to, to try to wrap a sandwich with something like this? Um, I hate this stuff. Uh, I don't keep this stuff in my house because this is what it looks like every time I try to use it. I don't know how they do it on TV when they stretch it over a bowl or they seal something in a, in a cookie sheet or, or some kind of baking tray using saran wrap because every time I pull saran wrap from the dispenser, it comes out looking like this. It's useless to me. So instead, what we have at our house are these. Now, these are extremely practical. Whoever invented this thing with this little plastic zipper, I mean, that guy knew what he was talking about. Because in my house, we don't use these simply for food storage. We can use these for almost anything. If you're a fisherman and you hit the river and you go in a little boat, this is a great way to store your toilet paper, okay? You'll keep it dry. If it ever goes over the side of the boat, it'll float there just like it's got its own little life vest on. You can store batteries or electronics in your camper and it will keep the humidity out. Uh, you may not know this, but 70 years ago, there was a small company in the Northeast that developed this plastic zipper. This plastic zipper was not used at that time for storage or food storage bags. It was used instead for loose leaf note binders uh, and flat briefcases to seal in the documents. Well, about 10 years into production, the Dow Chemical Co Corporation bought out this small company and they turned to the Ziploc. They decided the best use of that plastic zipper would be in food storage. And so for the next 20 years, the Dow Chemical Corporation began to produce Ziploc bags. That means that today, around the world, there's an estimated one trillion of these things in circulation. Now, why do so many people insist on this over that? 
because of how practical it is. Because of how easy it is to understand and work and use. Practical things usually capture our attention. Practical subjects in the Bible do the same. There are many subjects in our lives that continually bubble to the surface. It's like the same thing comes round and round and round. We're faced with some of the same issues over and over and over again. And thankfully, our Heavenly Father knows us, so He's put a lot of practical advice in the Word of God, knowing what we're going to face and how often we're going to face it. There are subjects that repeatedly bubble to the surface in our lives. They make, that makes them very practical. Uh, that's why we're, a subject like the one we'll address for the next few weeks is worthy of being addressed almost every time we're together because of how important it is and how often we will face the same issue. The beauty of every one of those practical subjects, again, is that they're covered in the Word of God. That's because God knows us and He didn't leave us to ourselves without information regarding the snares that are going to trip us up or the issues that we're going to deal with over and over again. So what I've decided to do is take the next three or four Sundays and talk about faith. Faith. The faith of our fathers. Now, faith is something that indirectly I touch on every time we're together. It is not uncommon when discussing the faith walk or the walk of faith to talk about faith. Faith is an extremely practical subject because if you're trying to follow Jesus Christ, you are going to be forced into circumstances that will require, even demand, great faith. Over and over again, your Bible covers the idea of faith. Over and over again, faith is demonstrated by men and women just like us. The great heroes of the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, were great Men and women of faith. Now, they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, their lives were messy. Some of the messiest lives I've ever known are recorded in this book. And while imperfect and messy and complicated sometimes, pulsing through their veins, however was a sincere desire to simply honor God with their one precious life. Ladies and gentlemen, that is faith. And so we're going to examine just a few of their stories. Today we're going to talk about David. Next time we'll talk about Abraham. But we'll talk about Moses and we'll talk about Noah. Because what's ironic to me is how often we will demonstrate faith in someone we don't even know and then find it so difficult to demonstrate faith in the one that we can know. I mean, think about it. How many times a week do we place our faith in someone we've never met? Someone we don't know? Every morning when I put the key into my ignition, I'm trusting my vehicle, a vehicle made by people that I don't know. My vehicle will crank and get me to my destination. Every time you get on an airplane... And the pilot comes over the speaker. You're trusting a pilot that you don't know to take off and land safely. When you go to the doctor and you've got a problem and that doctor prescribes medication, you're trusting that medication, the pills in that bottle made by a company. You don't know anybody who works there. 
but you're trusting. You embrace faith in people you don't know. And then when it comes to things that we must hand over to God, matters beyond our control, some of us struggle with the concept or the idea of trusting God. So let me just ask you, what do you do when your circumstance challenges your faith? How do you respond when what you see around you seems incongruent with what you know about God? How do you respond? What do you do when someone you love continues to battle an illness and it's wearing you down? In fact, your love for them means that their illness may be wearing you down more than it's wearing them down because you care. What do you do when your circumstances seem to contradict your beliefs about God? What do you do when you feel like you're just stuck in a job, let's say? It's a dead end, but you really can't change anything. In fact, you may have been praying for a new one, but nothing's happening. You're trapped financially, so you can't make too big of a step. What do you do? What do you do if you're living with a mate in marriage, a husband or a wife who doesn't see God the way you see God, who doesn't embrace your faith, who's a skeptic of what you believe? What do you do? How do you react when your future seems unclear, when it looks unstable? How do you respond if you're unhappy, you're just not satisfied, you're not fulfilled, and nothing seems to change. How do you handle it? What do you do? These kinds of circumstances challenge our faith. And I'm willing to bet that you know circumstances like that. I know circumstances like that. They challenge our faith. David knew circumstances like that. In case you don't know, David is the man in the Old Testament to many, many people. Uh, David is the one man in Scripture that's known as the, 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 the one most like God. The man with the heart after God is the way he's described. David, even to devout Jews to this day, uh, that name is revered as the greatest king that God's nation has ever known. David's military tactics are even studied to this day by those who make a science out of war. If you know David's story, then you know way back in 1 Samuel Chapter 16, Samuel anointed David as the next king of Israel. Samuel went to the household of Jesse and chose one of his sons, the youngest son, David, who was a shepherd. He said, you will be the next king of God's people. Following that anointing, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David, a teenager at the time, comes face to face with a giant. You know the story. David and Goliath. You talk about exceptional bedtime stories. David and Goliath is in the top five, I'd say. David, just a teenager at a time, stands up for his people and his king and brings down the mighty giant. Now, what followed was a, a wave of celebrity that washed over David. A wave of popularity that put David in the minds of the people. You've probably heard it said, the darkest hour always comes just before dawn, right? That's like an old proverb. Well, 
When we study and examine David, David's life, one thing we might realize is that often the toughest trial you've ever known always follows the greatest victory you'll ever experience. Because that's what happened to David. In the aftermath of the giant killing, in fact, that's what we need to address, the aftermath of a giant killing, David was incredibly popular among the people. David would walk down the street, and when the women saw David, they'd start singing and chanting his name. They were dancing in the streets, celebrating King David. He wasn't king yet, but he would one day be. Well, guess what? As you can imagine, all of this notoriety and and, and all of this celebrity made the king jealous. Saul became malicious. Saul set out to murder David as a threat to his kingdom. So David, for several years of his life, finds himself a man without a country. Following the anointing and following the the slaying of Goliath, David spends three years running and hiding from Saul. He's hiding in caves. He's crossing borders and changing identities. He's trying to survive because the king is out to kill him. It's during that time of hiding of surviving, that David pins the words to Psalm 22. I told you earlier in the service, very few people realize that the same man who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want, penned Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how the psalm begins. Read with me Psalm 22 verse 1, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Do those words sound familiar? Obviously, those are some of the last words of Jesus on the cross. This psalm is often referred to as the crucifixion psalm because what we're about to read, actions and reactions, as David describes his feelings, how David interprets his circumstance, those exact things were going to happen a thousand years later on the cross. In fact, If you couple Psalm 22 with Isaiah chapter 53, you have a very stunningly accurate portrayal of what would happen on the cross a thousand years after those words were written. Keep reading. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I find no rest. Have you ever been there? I would imagine most of us have. God, when are you going to answer my prayer? God, don't you realize how difficult this is becoming? Why is it taking so long? This is how David felt. Now watch the first word of verse 3. Yet. Yet. You know what that is? That's a conjunction. We call that a conjunction in the English language. He is about to make a statement of contrast. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I feel abandoned. Yet, he's gathering himself. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. Sometimes what we know about God only makes us feel worse about our circumstance. That's what's happening to David. Here's how I feel. I feel abandoned. You've forsaken me. Yet, I'm trying to remember that you're the one my nation praises because you're the one on the one true throne. You are enthroned. You're the one Israel praises. He goes on. 
in you our ancestors put their trust. Trust is a very interesting term in this chapter. You cannot address matters of faith without talking about trust. So watch how many times that word appears. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. By the way, you have a story of all of those ancestors. They're listed for you in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the hall of faith. David's referring to people like Abraham and and Noah and Joseph and Moses. He's saying, wait a minute, I know their story. I know how things turned out for them. Verse 5, to you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. Evidently, I'm not human. Evidently, I'm not worthy. I'm a worm. Because I know how you moved on the behalf of Moses. And I know how you spared Noah. And I know what you did through Abraham. Evidently, I'm not worthy. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by people, despised by the people. Watch verse 7. Sounds just like what happened to Jesus on the cross. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Remember those words from Christ on the cross? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing as they hurled insults. He goes on, verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. In other words, I know better than to not trust you, but as I survey my situation, oh boy, I feel forsaken and abandoned. Now, the following 11 verses, verses uh, 11 to 21, they're like a prayer of sorts. David's starting to turn the corner because he's focusing on what he knows to be true about God. He gets to this prayer and he goes round and round in this prayer. But what's, what's fascinating about the 31 verses of chapter 22 is that 21 of those verses are what we call laments, and only 10 of those verses are what we call praise or adoration. By the way, if you're doing the math at home, that's a two-to-one ratio. And in your Bible, the Psalms, of which there are 150, for every one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For every one of those, there are two laments. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? You see, part of the human condition is that up and down experience when it comes to matters of faith. In those 11 verses, David turns the corner. When we get to verse 22, he's already talking about what he's going to do when God makes him king. He's remembering, I've been anointed, I've been chosen by God. One day, God will make true on that promise, and as king, here's what I will do. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. But he has listened to his cry for help. David is affirming what he believes about God. That's very, very important. Verse 25. From you comes the theme of my great or my praise in the great assembly. 
Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. This is what I'm going to do when I'm king. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For the dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nation. Uh, If we took time to read this entire psalm from beginning to end, maybe you picked up on it in the segment that I just read. It is shocking to note the contrast between how he begins and how he ends. There is a striking contrast between the first verses and then the latter verses. What's happening? What does David know perhaps that we do not? How in the world is this relevant to you and me? It's the big statement, and I put it in the program. I'll put it on the screen. When our circumstances challenge our faith, we should... Act on what we believe about God, not on what we feel. That's what David knew that perhaps we don't. When my circumstances seem incongruent with what I believe to be true about God, I need to act on what I believe to be true about God, not on how I feel. But that is so unlike us, is it not? Don't we normally act solely based upon how we feel? Don't we normally respond based totally on how we feel? That's part of our nature. It's what we do. It's what comes naturally to us. If I feel like a failure, what do I do? I act on that feeling and I pout. If I feel like I'm unappreciated, I act on that feeling and I just get sour and bitter. If I feel like I've been taken advantage of, then I act on that feeling and I refuse to forgive someone. If I feel afraid, I act on the feeling and I withdraw and I hide. If I feel abused, I act on that feeling and I seek revenge. See, David perhaps knew something that you and I don't. The reason David can make that turn from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I feel abandoned by God too. When I am king and God makes good on his promise, I'm going to see to it that all the people celebrate the good name of God. How does he make that corner? Because maybe David knew something that you and I don't, and here it is. God is not my mama. God is not my mama. And David knew it. God is not my mama. God never promised once that life would be without failure. God never promised once to insulate me or shield me from everything in life that might hurt my feelings. God never promised once to insulate me from all that would make me uncomfortable, to massage every sore muscle and and, and kiss every boo-boo. That's what our moms did, not God. And David knew it. God has promised, however, many times over to be true to himself. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. I am the Lord your God, and I do not change. What's that say? What's that mean? That means I'm God and I'll always be God. There won't be a moment in time where I'll ever act unlike God. Here's what that means. That means that God's responsibility is to be true to himself. He will keep his word. We have the record One of the reasons my faith in God can continue to strengthen is because over and over we have the record 
of God's keeping his word to his people. If that's his responsibility, my responsibility, as David says, is to trust him, to walk in faith, to focus on what I know about him, not how I feel, to give him praise, to be obedient, even when my circumstances don't seem to fit. Look, very quickly, and I'll quit. Turn ahead in your Bible to Psalm 37. Let me read you just a few verses from a famous passage in all of the Bible. Psalm 37 is written several years after Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, David is not king. In Psalm 37, he is king. He's now got some age on him. He's got the benefit of hindsight. He can look back through all of that darkness, running and hiding from Saul, and he can put it into perspective, and he can write this down in order to help us. Listen to what David writes, Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of those who are evil. He's talking about Saul. Or be envious of those who do wrong. Don't fret. Look, there's a lot of evil in our world. There are a lot of broken people in positions of power in our government. There's a lot of darkness in popular culture. David says plainly, do not fret because of those who do evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like the green plants, they will soon die away. It's a stark contrast from the beginning of Psalm 22, is it not? Vastly different from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, Psalm 37, don't fret. Don't fret because of these small, evil people. You see, this apparent contradiction between who God is and the reality of your circumstances, if that's your focus, it will consume you with doubt. David's saying, don't worry, don't fret. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord. That means find your pleasure in the things of God, not temporary earthly things that are here for a moment and gone. He will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Three interesting words, verses 3, 4, and 5. Trust, verse 3. Delight, verse 4. Commit, verse 5. They speak for themselves. Verse 6, he will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, the vindication of your vindication like the noonday sun. But watch verse 7, but be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. God was with David and David knew it. God is with you and you should know it. We've got to trust him. So, what do we learn by way of review? Number one, I hope you wrote this down. God is not my mama. That's number one, okay? Number two, God's responsibility is to remain true to himself. He will always keep his word. Do not doubt it. And number three, my responsibility then is to trust him. I've got to focus in the darkness on what I know to be true about God, what I believe about the character and the nature of God. Not how I feel about my circumstance. That's how I walk by faith and not by sight. You see, every time you intentionally focus on the character and nature of God, you grow in your faith walk. And the next time the lights go dark, you know where you're standing. Every one of us, I'm certain, have been in the darkness long enough to recognize 
that this darkness prepares me for the next darkness. And the next darkness will prepare me for the following darkness. But one thing that will not change throughout all my darkness is God. That's why it's my responsibility to trust him. And that's what men and women of faith are good at. Let's pray. Father, in our circumstance of suffering, help us trust you. Father, help us know you that we might focus on what we know about you and not how we feel. For the apparent contradiction between what we're experiencing and what we believe to be true of you will consume us if we allow it. So, Father, lead us. And in the darkness, as we cling to the promise, give us cause to trust. We pray for confidence, reassurance for those who need it. We pray for peace for those as well. And we pray it all because of Jesus. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.